Um, hi, good evening. Welcome to this um, LSE International Health and International Development and the Global Health Initiative uh, at the LSE to the talk on 10 reasons why we're wrong about the world um, and why things are better than they, you actually think. Uh, uh, talk about the book that is coming out, that's just come out on Factfulness. My name is Tiziana Leone. I work in the Department of International Development. And above all, I teach on a course that is called um, Planning for Population and Development, which does what it says on the tin. So it's no uh, surprise that I'm actually a great fan of Hans Rosling, Gutminder, and what the, um, Anna and Ola are actually, uh, have been doing in the last uh, 15 years. Um, the course is very much based around the themes that um, you find in Gutminder and around the work that Hans Rosling has been doing. And apart from teaching them how to do projection, I teach them about caring for data because above all, I'm a data geek and I love um, treating data as friends and not as enemies. So one of the things that I teach them is trying to get stories about data, which was one of the best things that Hans Rosling used to do, actually trying to get the story behind the data. And also to get a few um, tricks at dinner parties, like telling your um, granny that we're not going to be invaded by migrants because, after all, only 3% of the population in the world ever migrates. Um, it's no surprise then that um, I've been using Gutminder and to try and wow the um, students with the bubbles and also... Um, um, we've been very, very lucky to have Hans Rosling here on this very stage, five years, which has put few academics to um, shame when he started asking the same questions that you've been answering uh, tonight. Unfortunately, we can't do a comparison because at that time it was just Hans, Hans raising rather than doing it on, on a computer. Uh, but at that time it was quite um, funny to see some academics actually behaving like teenagers whose member of a teenage uh, pop band was turning up because after all... Um, Hans Rosling was our um, hero for data geeks, and we were all excited, even though we didn't want to, um, to admit it. Anyway, it's a real pleasure and honor to um, invite Anna um, uh, Rosling Ronlund and Ola Rosling um, to talk to us about the legacy and the work that Gumbinder has been doing since Hans has, been, um, has passed away last year, unfortunately, leaving us um, a massive gap. Anna and Ola are the co-founders of Gutminder, as you all well know. They're also the brains, as Hans told us several times, uh, behind the Trendalyzer and Dollar Street, which they're going to talk about um, to us later on. But above all, they've been basically um, pushing for the Gutminder Foundation, working on trying to make data accessible and transparent and to make um, policy-making decisions based on facts and not on fear. Um, I would like you to refrain from um, using the phones, but you're very welcome to tweet. That's the only way that you can use your phone tonight. The hashtags are LSE facts and factfulness. Remember, it's just one L. Uh, and what else? Um, I think there's not going to be any fire drill. And um, the authors welcome you to um, get a copy if you haven't got it at the end of the talk and get it signed. So there's going to be a sale of the book outside. There's going to be about it's one hour of talk and then half an hour a list of questions. Anna, thank you. Thank you. You can hear, can you hear? No, it's not on, is it? No mic, right? Or is it on? Is it on? Can you hear me in the mic? 
You do? Weird. It's <laughs> uh, no, I heard it. I heard, so I needed to sneeze or something to, to know that I was <laughs> mic'd up. It's okay, right. Okay, uh, so I'm, I'm really happy uh, to see so many people here uh, this late in the evening. It's fantastic. Um, we are here, both me and Ula, even though you only see me at the stage at the moment. And the reason is this. So actually, I mean, we're trying to grab your answers on these questions. So I will try to distract you for about 10 minutes while Ula in the back, like forensically tries to put the information into our slides for the second part of the presentation. So what I'm going to do in the beginning here will be sort of, uh, I mean, it will be on topic. That's good. But it will sort of be while we wait to see how well you perform, right? <laughs> so... Um, First of all, we come from the Gapminder Foundation, and the Gapminder Foundation is a free nonprofit, a nonprofit foundation who works to promote a fact-based worldview that everyone can understand. And we have been doing that for 18 years together with Hans in different formats, of course. Uh, Gapminder was founded in 2005. But we have been doing that uh, mostly digitally and by lectures and so forth. Uh, and... and we had a growing frustration where it felt like how much, it doesn't matter how much we try, we, there is something lacking. <laughs> it's like, oh, and people tried to tell us, uh, you, maybe you should write a book. And it's like, no nonsense, you know, we're modern people, we don't write books. That's, that's, that's what other people do. It's much better to work digitally and, you know, share information and people will search and everything will be fine. But finally, it feels like we have tried everything on everything except the book thing. So we, 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 we realized maybe we should do try the book as well. So we, we did. <laughs> and we decided to write the book and we got started. And, and, and um, a little bit into the process, not very long into the process, then Hans got his diagnosis of cancer, which was very unfortunate because we didn't know if he was going to have just a few weeks or if we were lucky a year maybe. So we started by working very hectically and we got a full year together, which was very good. Uh, and then we, we have spent the last year, me and Ola, the guy behind the stage, <laughs> uh, we spent the last year finalizing it. So it feels a bit unreal that it's actually a physical thing you can hold on to. I, I said here that for me, it's sort of rocket science now <laughs> that you can sort of put some black things on a paper and you can carry it with you and you can mark and you can do things. So <laughs> we try to come over that phase and, and try to be like, you know, normalize the thing. But for us, it's pretty cool still. And I realize most of you would sort of know that it's sort of cool with a book. But for us, it's new, right? So this is a book, what it looks like in the U.S. Here it's red, the opposites, but sort of the same concept, right? And we wrote it together for the past year. And one of the reasons was that we realized very few people actually uh, know the world as well as they should. And they spend their time actually watching the news, right? So what do you see when you watch the news? You will see disasters, war, you will see refugee crisis, catastrophes, beautiful beaches, cute animals, and other strange cultural rides. And you try to use those images and put it together and shape a worldview. And it's not that easy because everything is extraordinary events. And how can you shape a decent worldview based on extraordinary events? Your brain is not really functioning that way. So imagine the world instead as a street where you have the poorest to the left and the richest to the right, 
and everybody else somewhere in between. When, this is the 7 billion people of the world, by the way, and when we asked Swedish students where they think they belong on this income scale for the world population, the Swedish students actually say here, <laughs> and yes, it's weird, I know, but they really do. And when you, when you think you are actually on the middle of the world income distribution scale while you're actually on top, how can you understand the world? I mean, it's, it's sort of a baseline question. How can we continue from there on? So we, we have continued the concept of the street, actually, and we realized we need to make the world easier to understand because, you, as you might know, a lot of people are actually afraid of statistics. If they see statistics, they might just like, whew, you know, this is the kind of technical stuff I don't want to deal with. So we have tried to sort of hide it by doing streets instead, and where we use like street numbers, <laughs> you know, counting upwards and so forth. I'm trying to find concepts where you can communicate important big issues with uh, the audience so that they do not sort of run off. So first, here we divide the world into four levels. We call it level one. That is the poorest end, up to $2 a day, basically extreme poverty. Level two, level three, level four, pretty basic. And then we place uh, the world population on the street. One billion people live in level one conditions. One bil uh, three billion on level two conditions. Two billion people on level three and one billion on level four. Pretty basic. So how can we understand what life is like on these different levels? Well, we can look at transportation, for instance. If you live on level one, most likely your transportation would be that you walk. On level two, you might have access to a bike. Level three, probably a motorbike. And level four, a car. I mean, it's very, very basic concepts. We can do the same for food, for instance. Level one food... Probably you eat the same dish over and over again. Level two, you start to have a little bit more variation, but still a lot of repetition. Level three, level two and three, nutritious, but very little variation. Level four, you start eating different things for all the five meals a day, if you have five. And you eat different things for all the days of the week. And you're afraid that you will be malnourished if you repeat the same dish twice, you know. <laughs> So it's sort of, you understand the, the scope, sort of. So Dollar Street, uh, roughly what we have done, you saw we had imagery there. So what we have done is that we have sent out photographers to sort of populate this street. So we sent them to homes all over the world uh, to take the same set of photos in each and every home so that we can compare what basic living standards and everyday life looks like in different countries on different income levels and see yeah, the differences and the similarities. So roughly, we look at how people sleep, how they cook, how they play, and so forth. And this is what it looks like uh, on the website, and it's free for everyone to use, and we would love to get more homes, by the way. Uh, so please look at the, in the About section under the three, you know, under the menu sign, there you have instructions, and you can do your own homes. Seems like people on level four are a little bit afraid for privacy reasons to share their homes. They want it to be like perfectly fit and beautiful, but still they don't want to show if they have any valuables. So they end up in a pretty tricky situation. While on level one, people are so friendly, and level two and level three too. But up on four, people start like, yeah, but I don't know if I want to let anyone in, you know. So if you feel... Uh, 
If you feel like sharing, please do. <laughs> so what we can do here, now we look at the world by beds. So we have the same street on top. We have the poorest to the left, the richest to the right. And you can see here under, you have some different beds. Maybe we can turn the light a little bit down on the stage if possible. Um, so you can see here, you have poorer beds to the left. In this example, we have Haiti, Tunisia, Rwanda, India, United States, and so forth. And we can actually scroll down and see the variety of different beds. So we can look at actual everyday items and compare them visually without really having to think that it is statistics. But this is actually the only database that consists of these everyday items well-organized, and we hope that it will be super big. Now we have 300 homes from 50 countries. Some people get impressed and think, oh, wow, that's a lot. And in one way it is, but we would need at least 10 homes a country in all the world's countries. So compared to that, this is a fraction, right? So... This is just a starting point and a mental model so you can understand the concept. Now we look at beds, but of course we should look at toilets as well, right? Take the chance. It's not every day you visit people's toilets from around the world. Not bathrooms, really the toilets in this case. Uh, and we can see the variety. Remember the Swedish students that said that they thought they were in the middle. Let's zoom into like the middle income level toilets. This would be a typical Swedish toilet then. Where are the Swedish students live? And they wouldn't recognize their home here, right? While going down wouldn't do it either. But if you slide it upwards, here, this looks like the typical Swedish toilets. But you see United States, France, China, Netherlands, South Africa, and so forth. Because level four toilets usually includes something flushing and the pipes, right? That seems like something people universally like. So you can go here and you can browse around visually and you can decide yourself if you want to see certain countries or certain things. And you don't have to think so much about the you know, data or household surveys and stuff and, and dig into the paperwork. You can just go here and visually browse. So that is sort of one of the things that we have been using. But not everything works as photos. Wait, let's go here. Now I trick myself here in a very bad way. I accidentally added a slide I did not know that I had added <laughs> for, the, for the reason if there is no Wi-Fi. But we have, so never mind. So sometimes it doesn't really make sense to, to look only at photos, right? So this is where we're supposed to get from the wall and mix this with water and brush. So therefore, in the Dollar Street, we tag this image not only as her wall, but also as her toothpaste, which it actually is, right? Because that is what what's, uh, is significant for life on level one and level two, that you have to be smart and use the same items in so many different ways. While up here, we will definitely have different toothpaste, toothbrushes, uh, electrical ones, uh, flossing, you know, name it, whatever. Uh, and we will have it individually uh, within the family. So where we keep our toothbrushes, it might be a lot of different items, right? Uh, here we can look. It's very light. Is it possible to turn down these lights somehow? So if someone... I, I will not stop talking, but that would be nice. So... Here we can see the U.S., the income distribution of the U.S. in the upper end of the street. We zoom in a little bit. 
We have visited a home at the upper 20% of the U.S. population, the Howards. This is their home. And we have visited another home in the lower end of the income spectrum, the Hadleys. And we can go into their cutlery drawers and see there is a huge difference. We're in the same country, both are Americans, but it actually looks pretty different, whether you are on the low income spectrum or not, right? We can add another family in the middle and see now, the Robinsons, and see now how we have the gradual change. Plastic box to a wooden drawer for, for cutlery, to a wooden drawer for cutlery with compartments in wood and even a minor compartment in plastic for the very tiniest spoons as well. So it's a very uh, interesting way to see it. And we can also look at just how kitchen sinks. And this one, by the way, is not a kitchen. It's the, the bathroom because they don't have a kitchen. And we can continue looking at the living rooms. Even here, we can see the big difference. In the, in the left one, you can see that they have a lot of different kinds of things in that room. In the middle, room, middle image, you can see they have like a, a, a tidy area because they can store other things away somewhere. And in the upper one, you realize they must probably have more rooms, playrooms, family rooms, dinner rooms. This is more like a lounge kind of thing. So you can, just by looking at the imagery, you can actually learn quite a lot. You can do the same in China. Three families in China on different incomes. There are houses, there are sofas, there are stoves. And looking at this, I think the important lesson here is when we... Very often we talk about how cultures are and how countries are and how religions are. And that is very ridiculous because it will be very different depending on income level. I mean, it's, it's an obvious thing, but we tend to forget it very often. These are very different ways of cooking. And the cool thing is when we start comparing. So now we compare the China with the U.S. And we go to the two richest families we've seen so far, the Howards and the Wu's. And look into their bedroom. It's pretty hard to distinguish which one is actually the American and which one is not. Or the sofas, or the play structures. Both are made in China, so I mean, that's probably why. But anyhow, and we can do the same in the poorer end. We can see Nigeria and US, uh, China, sorry. Zoom in, take two different homes. They do, it looks like they have nothing in common on this image, I would say completely different cultures and places and so forth. But look at the ceiling, pretty similar. The sofa, how they store their grains, what they're going to eat for dinner, and how they cook. Pretty similar. I think that is the biggest takeaway from the Dollar Street concept, which goes throughout the book, actually, is that on the same income level, we will see huge similarities across cultures. And that, now I start to become a little nervous, I had to admit, because I said to Ula, you have 10 minutes, sharp, and I already talked 20. So, but there he is. Woo, that's beautiful. So, no, 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 come, come, come. So, so the thing is, when we see only in the media, we see these extraordinary events so often, we get this overdramatic worldview that makes it really hard to understand the world. And... Let's see how you did. <laughs> so we'll come back in a little bit and talk about uh, some other rules of thumb and so on. We, yes. But here. Wonderful. So uh, we saw that the world is not divided in two groups. And I also saw someone trying to actually fix the light behind here. Uh, but that was tricky, it seems like. You're standing on my cable. Yeah, but I'm adding this one. So. Wonderful. So... Uh, 
Let's see here. Oh, don't. This is like a spoiler. Okay, let's do that. I need a little bit more space. This is hiding your. You can't see really. Like don't, the, don't put it down. I'm not going to close it. No, no. Okay. I need power here. So, how many answered the 13 questions? Can you raise your hand? Woohoo. Oh, good. How many have already read the book? Okay, good. <laughs> so, because I've seen the results. <laughs> so, I was wondering have, uh, if everybody already read it. How many have seen my father's TED Talks? Some of them. Okay, not everyone. That's interesting. Because you scored quite well on many of the questions. And then everybody come up with the hypothesis, why are they so good? Well, they've seen all Hans Rosling's talks. Obviously not. That was fascinating, actually. So there are other people in this world also spreading a message about the facts. Because you were quite good. Don't, don't, I shouldn't exaggerate it. Let's start with this question. <laughs> Global climate... We only ask fact questions, right? Because we try to find ignorance to make sure, and that's this slideshow too. I'm going to show you most about the things you, were, uh, you knew least about. So that I make sure this makes sense to you. Instead of wasting time on talking about my favorite topics, Right? You can't really see much. You should be sitting in the middle there, because this is interesting. Look at this. <laughs> the global climate experts believe that over the next 100 years, the average temperature will... Okay, make sure it's experts believe. Okay, we're not saying this will happen, but they, what do they believe? We ask the public, what's the right answer? Anybody there? Like, will the climate become warmer, right? Yes. Okay, this is very important. Let's see if the public knows about this. So we asked through Ipsos Novi and Novos, we asked the poll, online polls to representative samples across 14 countries, 12,000 people in the Gap Minor Misconception study, which we're publishing on our website at, at the side of the book. But these results are all in the book as well. Okay? So we asked the question, and these are the results from Sweden. Wow, 82% got it right. So we asked in the other countries like UK, and you beat Sweden. Yeah, I'm so sorry. Like, I don't know what went wrong in Sweden, really. Maybe it was a sunny day. Only stupid people were at home or something. Okay, in Germany, oh, you see, they beat UK. They're so knowledgeable. 88% got it right. So is there any need for public education in this planet? I doubt, right? Everybody knows everything. Now, the only question about the, uh, climate is action. What are we going to do? Oh, Max, please move in there. You're going to see more. Okay. What are we going to do about the climate? That's the question. We don't need more information campaigns, at least not about what the experts... Well, you can try to target this group who failed to learn what the experts think, etc. Of course. But this is generally, across these countries, a public education success story. Let's celebrate it. Within a few years, everybody knows what the experts are saying. Success! Great! Anyone working with climate in here? Did you measure? Oh, okay, only one. Or uh, two. One up there, two. <laughs> oh, two. So <laughs> did you measure what people know? No, probably not. You just support a lot of information campaigns. But we need to measure, is it worth it? Do they already know these things? Maybe we should be teaching them other things. So that's what we're doing. And at LSE, we can celebrate. Only 8% of you got it wrong, right? <laughs> A big applause. I can clap my hand. So we're not going to talk about climate. Because you already kind of know these things, and we don't know about the actions needed. So let's focus on another question. We ask, in the last 20 years, the proportion of the world population living in extreme poverty, the poverty rate, extreme poverty rate, did it... You see the different answers? This is already checked. This is the correct one. But the difference between answers are always enormous. It's never in the decimals, because that doesn't make sense when you're going to confront the public and say you're ignorant. You can't be in the decimals. They will just defend and say, I couldn't know that. But did it double? 
Did it like increase the extreme poverty rate or stay the same or cut to half? We're always enormous difference. ABC questions, all the questions are ABC. Okay? And these are then fantastic results from Sweden. <laughs> oh. So the majority got it wrong. That's very, very sad. But we're still very happy because we beat all the other countries. <laughs> you see? 25%. And we asked a follow-up question to the Swedes. How could you know this? And they got the text field in the online form. And they could type in whatever they wanted. And they typed the name of my father. Isn't that great? So education, public education works very well, at least in Sweden where we've been super active. This is telling us we just need to do more of it, right? Because it works. It really works. You just need a higher volume. But I don't know what my father did at the zoo, because when we went to the zoo and asked the question, they scored even better. (laughs) We didn't have a follow-up question to them, because you give ABC bananas, that's why all our questions are ABC, to make it simple to see are people better than random or not. Okay, we're only comparing to random. And as soon as people are worse than random, this includes you and this presentation, then that's worth teaching about to bring people up to regular lack of knowledge, which is 33%, right? (laughs) Beyond 33%, that's knowledge, right? Below, what is that? That's what we call ignorance. It's when you score worse than random, you have a misconception in your head, bringing you wrong, right? Otherwise, you would never get below this line. You know, that many people think they are randomly guessing. Because I didn't know, so I just answered. No, you didn't just answer. That would make you a chimpanzee, right? <laughs> this is exactly the challenge of all these questions. How can we bring the switch to 33%? Then we're going to leave it to public education to do the rest of the job. Gapminder's work is only to bring it up to random, okay? So we're trying to identify the misconceptions. And now look at this audience. This is a very eminent orders. That's why I asked, did you see my father's uh, presentations? Because you scored very well. Look at this. You're better than the Swedes, right? <laughs> Congratulations. That's an achievement, right? So we could stop there if it wasn't for the other 11 questions. Okay. <laughs> I can, yes. So extreme poverty fell like this, thanks to Max Rosa. Where is Max? Is he in the room? Oh, yeah. A big applause for Max. And Hannah is there too, I think. Max Rosa with the Our World in Data and the Wikipedia, etc., have been a great resource for knowledge for our book. Free access to this information, easily understandable, are used across uh, schools across the world. Everybody loves it. And this, this chart is on Max's page. He has two alternative lines there. We made it one line to make it simpler. So we're making it even simpler than the Our World in Data. That's kind of the, the complementary role we're playing. But look at this decrease of extreme poverty. People living through the ages when extreme poverty dropped faster than ever before. And the question we asked, did it increase? Yeah, they think it actually increased. 95% of people in the U.S. said extreme poverty during these decades increased or doubled. Okay? 95% includes all of Trump's voters and all of Hillary's voters. Almost, right? 5% different. So they're equally ignorant. They shouldn't be pointing fingers at each other. They should sit down and learn something. Okay? <laughs> that's, uh, that's engaging. Okay, here is the, the income mountains showing number of people on different incomes back in 1800. And this is just explaining the people in extreme poverty were on very low incomes. It's the same as Dollar Street, right? I'm going to do this super quick because you probably know it. It's from also in the BBC film we did with Dan and Archie, who's also sitting here. They also deserve an applause because the BBC film producers are sitting here with us. <laughs> and thanks to that, the UK scored quite good on some of these questions, and that's great. Okay, here we go. Extreme poverty. 
keeping people moving out of extreme poverty. First Europe, so we thought we were better than everyone else. Okay, 1975, I was born to a camel world, right? Look at this, 1975, there we go. Two humps, okay? Rich people want to help the poor. They go from the rich to the poor. A very simple world, like Tintin world, right? Okay, the thing is, this is, I'm 43 years old. This was a long time ago. 42. Okay, sorry. <laughs> There are three kinds of people, right? Those who can count and those who cannot. 1975, since then the world has changed. Look at this. The four, oh, Communist Party of China is another name for this. But they moved out of extreme poverty. Look, the hump is in the middle. But when we ask the Europeans and the rich guys, they think this hump is still down there. So when they talk about aid to, from the rich to the poor, I'm standing here in the middle so you can't see the hump. Okay, it's the majority of mankind just disappears from their worldview. They think the rich are going to help the poor and, and that six billion people are there. No, the six billion are here, where UK was in the 30s. They want jobs, they want industries, they have education, they got bikes, they are, biking, they are buying motorcycles, and in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, they are entering the high-income high consumer market. So what we've seen of world market and globalization so far was just the trailer, right? The Western market. Now comes the world market. That's these five billion people moving there. They want to buy everything we've got already. That's the world market. We haven't seen it yet. Just, we just know kind of what it looks like. You can sell stuff to a lot of people, right? Okay, so that's going to happen into the future. Actually, the book contains a, a projection using IMF, a little bit of guesswork. 2.2 GDP per capita growth into the future. You can read about that in the book. Yes, putting like one billion up. Yes, we, if people continue striving for more income, and why would they not? Then these five billions are going to try to get up there. There is nobody can stop them. Nobody has ever stopped five billions from doing what they want. Okay? So we better plan for that. That's pretty much the message. Whatever we think about it or feel about it, we better plan for that. That's the future of the world, most likely. Okay. It's not just trivial, but I make it sound trivial now. Let's do that. So we asked another question about what the majority has and not. Different vaccination, what percentage of one-year-olds? 80% are they vaccinated or 20? The correct answer is 80. No, it's actually 88. This is good practice in public communication. Always round to your disadvantage. So 88% is the right answer. We do 80%. So no one can say we're exaggerating progress, right? Because people try to defend themselves when you show them that they are wrong. And these are the public results in the different countries. I only, we only have the 12 questions where people score worse than random. That's all we care about. Again and again on these questions. Uh, compared to chimpanzees. I went to the World Health Summit, this nice com uh, conference in Berlin where Merkel was talking the, in the morning and I talked in the afternoon and I tested the audience, you know. You shouldn't do that. It's very bad behavior. But then I took off and in the afternoon he has disappeared. So <laughs> these are the results on vaccination que question from November in Berlin. It's fresh data. It's, this one is not in the book because we did it while writing, finishing the book, right? So this is the world experts on public health. Almost like chimpanzees. You see, better than Sweden. Better, so we can really trust these guys, right? And then uh, 73% of them, maybe they were sleepy or something. I don't know. They picked the wrong answer. So we asked the same question also in, in this eminent audience at Miami University, Clinton Lecture. These are results. These are actually in the book, uh, half of them at least. Uh, they will also be available on our website. We try to anonymize a little bit of the groups. I don't know about the LSE, but yeah, let's, let's, uh, let's look at uh, the, one of the biggest banks. Here in London, but Hans signed a paper, so we can't really say which one it was. A global bank, finance investors, they put the money where it should be, right? And we asked them, are kids vaccinated? 4% picked the right answer. The, or the 85% 
picked the terribly wrong answer, believing minority of kids are vaccinated. A vaccination is requiring industry, roads, a freezing chain for the vaccine from the factory to the kid's arm. It requires everything that industrialization needs. Okay, so 88% of kids has that. Live in a society where the basics exist. Educated nurses and stuff. But the finance bankers in London have no clue about the world they are investing in. So the money ends up in places like Sweden and England, where it feels safe. Home, basically, not in Bangladesh and Kenya, where the growth actually happens. So there's something on a worldview level. Uh, well, Economic Forum in Davos. Well, yeah, I don't have time for this. The Nobel laureates. You can read about it in the book. Okay. <laughs> so here is the U.S. news conference. 20% of the media, basically, uh, intellectuals like us in this room, we think we should blame the media, right? They are so unknowledgeable and they want to misportray the world. So we test the, the, the media, the conference, the news conferences in U.S., in Europe, and then we went to your factual filmmaker festival, or not festival, conference, where the producers from National Geographic, PBS, <laughs> and BBC, etc., etc., all of them. Yeah, you're laughing because it was really fun. You know, it's like they're... Uh, it's, they are supposed to be the knowledgeable ones teaching the others, but then they score like this. Factual filmmakers. Yeah, this is in the book too. 17% pick it right. The other ones live in a world where nobody has modernized, you know. They're still stuck there in extreme poverty, the majority. No, the majority has it. When we talk about extreme poverty, it's only this fraction of humanity left. Everyone else have already crossed the line. So, in Sweden, the media wasn't better. Don't think that. Okay, so this is because the news journalists, they fill their heads with what Don Kahneman uh, then calls the availability bias. The source of information that we use to portray the world is whatever is available to us. And it's going to be a very terrible world when nobody, everybody's suffering. That's what we see. At LSE, we don't have that problem, right? <laughs> Only half of you. Great. <laughs> So if you talk to the person next to you, you probably solve this. No, you're not going to score bad. This is the mega misconception number one. We're not interested really in the facts. It's the worldview. How do they think about the world, like on a higher level? Uh, many poor, few rich. And then you get many without vaccination, right? All those questions we're asking is like a proxy for the many probably don't have it. It's the other way around. The many already have it. The people in the hump in the middle have anything that is affordable. Vaccination is affordable. So that's how you should be guessing instead of learning all the detailed facts. That's this big hump. Here's a question. Now we're coming to the embarrassing part. Tigers, giant pandas, and black rhinos. Yes, I cherry-picked three animals that are kind of interesting, okay? Because we hear a lot about them, and they are interesting and beautiful. Are they more threatened today than they were in 1996? That's the question. Did it increase their threateningness? Okay? Uh, correct answer, anyone there? Yes? Okay. How many of these three? None is the correct answer. And how many got this right? In Sweden, we love animals. Oh, Okay, so we, we, don't, we can't dare to build... But in Japan, look, 26% probably heard about the pandas, at least. In China, they know that the pandas are surviving because they, they help save the pandas with their own hands. They know what investments have been done. All these three animals have a larger wild population to them they, they had 10 years ago. 10 years ago, it was terrible. It's still terrible, but now there is protection in place. And the populations are increasing for the black rhinos, not the white rhino. That's still in a... Because that lives where extreme poverty is, right? Lived. No, this is black rhino. Wasn't it? What? Lived. Lived. Yeah, that area, was, that, that's where it was extinct last week. So we're not trying to say that everything is fine with the animals. But it's, it's systematic problems people have uh, recognizing progress. In a world where there are terrible problems, 
Seeing the progress which should fill us with hope is something where it's a missed opportunity. We're doing something right with these animals. So those who pay WWF money should probably continue. How will they know if they think all the animals are going extinct, there's nothing we can do? Then they, they would lose their support, right? And that is why we should talk about progress. Everyone here who want to promote progress, please, please don't tell your, uh, your like negative cousin that everything is getting better. Never say everything is getting better because that's a damn naive lie. There are tons of things that are bad in this world. But neglecting the progress it doesn't help us. Seeing this progress tells us there's something we're doing right about the tigers and the rhinos and the pandas. Let's do that for the other animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Talk, right? So... So when we asked it at, this at LSE, you scored worse than chimpanzees. Of course you love animals, right? Isn't that the case? Probably. At least 75% of you. <laughs> so looking at the income levels, these are the tiger savers in China on bikes, right? They've been to school, they got the bikes, they start to protect the animals locally in their village thanks to the fact that WWF on their website, this is their website screenshot, says by educating local people on these middle income levels, that's how we save the animals. And that's why fact-based worldview also applied to the environmental movement. It's not all about GDP and economic improvement. No, this is how we save the tigers on this planet. So, moving into the, the next slide. No, let me, let me just finish yes, this part. Yes. I'm just physically... Because the, here are the terrible uh, results. This was really bad. I know, saw, but I'm yeah. just making a physical marker and That's we're good, married good, good. since long. Okay. So I'm a bit too rude. <laughs> so in the book we describe three mega misconceptions, right? Uh, the first one, divided world. You didn't, didn't seem to suffer from it. You were better than chimps, okay? The world, everything is getting worse feeling. No, they, it wasn't so bad. But the third one, you were really, really bad. Most of you, actually. So let's just step through this charts and, and show you. The feeling that the world population is just increasing. Can you remember this map, please? Max, can you memorize it, please? Just every spike, it's where people live on this planet. No, our human brains are too small. So this kind of information and detailed formulas and uh, regression analysis, it goes in and out, okay? What can we remember? Anyone has a cell phone in here? No cell phones? Raise your hand if you have a cell phone. A little bit of exercise is good. Everybody has a cell phone. Do you remember the PIN code? Yes, right? So here's the pin code of the world. It's 7 billion people distributed on four regions. One, 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 four, right? Quite easy. This you can remember with your brain. You don't have to get a new brain, right? Like the pin code. So next time you guess, the right answer is Asia. Everything is happening in Asia, or most of it, right? So in this room, unfortunately, you didn't pick this map. You picked the map with two billions in Africa. That's many people do, okay? So putting one billion people on the wrong continent... Shame on you. What are you doing? <laughs> are you educated intellectuals or whatever? Chimpanzees do it better by just closing their eye, picking a banana, right? Shouldn't do that. Now the last one. So this is LSE. Quite good. You were like chimpanzees, right? Actually better than Australia. No, yeah, better than Australia. Really good. Australia kind of know that there are lots of Asians probably. <laughs> okay. So in the future, pin codes change, right? One billion more on each of these continents in 2050. And then by the end of the century, four billion more in Africa, one billion more in Asia. And the European, the Western world, the North Americans, we call it the West in the book, is going to be 8% of the world population. If, if we want to participate in the global trade discussions, we probably need to start behaving a little bit nicer, I guess. Otherwise, the world market will just exclude us because they don't need us, Right. They're going to have the world trade ocean down here, Indian Ocean. And why aren't they going to bother talking to people in Alaska and Sweden and places like that? 
So that's one part of the message of the book. These people were part of the biggest revolution, I would say, in mankind's history, the sexual revolution, where we separated reproduction from sex, okay? By contraceptives and modern ways of uh, culture, talking about sex. And this has happened across the world since 1965. The fertility rate of the world dropped down to almost two, thanks to cultural change, mainly. It also made it easier to have lots of sex without kids, because of contraceptives. But it's really a cultural change that has happened across cultures and regions, and Africa is coming to this future UN pro- uh, forecast is that it's probably going to reach too, if family planning, yes, continues as now. It, there is no drastic change needed to, to uh, make this happen. Yes, more of the same, more family planning, more sexual education to everywhere. All cultures are ready for it. If they don't need many kids in extreme poverty, they are ready to start discussing. So now it's, now it's done, yes. okay. So I asked this question about children. Number of children in the future. This one, you got terribly wrong. We're saying there are two billion children today. Here's the LSE results. Look, you're not as good as Japan, right? Better than Spain, though. So there are TED Talks with my father where we show this. It's in the book. So the number of children has stopped growing on this planet. This is what you need to learn from this lecture. Everything else was more or less entertainment, okay? But this you didn't know, okay? This you didn't know. The number of children has already stopped growing. There will still be four billion more people, four billion more adults. Where are they going to come from? We know where children come from, right? Where do adults come from? Spaceships. (laughs) I heard you whispered it. Yes, at night. Huge spaceships with four billion people. This is what you guessed. The reason for more adults or more people, you actually guessed for the, there will be more very old people. And you picked the wrong answer here. The correct answer is there are going to be more people of like my age, more adults in the middle group. There were age brackets in the question. I don't have them in the slide. So here is now finally the fill up of the the age pyramid in the future. Simplified like the world map. This you can learn, okay? Seven billion people aged below 15, below 30, 45, 60. 15 year age groups on every floor. This is in the book too. What will happen next is what my father used to say. Sadly, the old will die. Yeah. Demography is very predictable. Yeah, it's fun too. Demography is really fun. Yes. It's predictable, actually. And that's why the UN forecasts are so good. They're only like 5% off historically. They're really, really good because people grow up, they fall in love and they make kids and they want to have only two kids, right? So that makes it possible to predict that we're going to become 10 billion people. 15 years, 15 years, 15 years. Where did they come from? Well, they fill up the floors because these generations were smaller historically. That's the only reason. No more kids, no longer lives. Three billion more people. It's called demographic momentum. We call it the fill-up because you can remember the vision of something filling up. Now you know this, you're going to answer correctly next time. Please take the test again and score 12 out of 12. The climate question we just remove because everybody knows it. It's just there for decoration, kind of. 12 questions, you get a certificate from, from Gapminder, which we call, there's 1 billion more from longer lives. Sorry, I, I kind of simplified a bit. That's 1 billion, roughly. Okay, so three misconceptions. Now all three are gone from your head. That's great. That's all we have to contribute. You can read the book. There are far more details in there, of course. So how did people score? This is the last slide. When we, asked, when we asked 12 questions, yes, we asked 12 <laughs> questions, 15% got zero correct answers. Well, this is adults in, in 14 countries. And b- nobody got everything right. So only 10% scored better than the chimpanzee. 
That, that is a systematic problem like a visual illusion. Everybody sees the world wrong in a systematic way, so we don't have to be ashamed. And that's basically the comforting side of factfulness, which Anna will now summarize. So please stay. We're going to have a question-answer session afterwards. Yes, we need to. But we need to just summarize because this false picture of the world is so common and so systematic that none of us have to be ashamed. We can instead be curious, asking, with cognitive science telling us how the brain works, like what Don Kahneman and, and Don Ariely has been writing, how are we going to get this right? There is something we need to do about how we think about knowledge, right? Yes. So basically, as you might understand, it's not enough just to have the frameworks. You've seen a lot of frameworks and a lot of data, and it's pretty easy to understand. It's not that, but it doesn't seem to do enough, and most people will not get access to everything. It's all about how can we outsmart the chimp, as Ulla said. So we have defined 10 dramatic instincts that we think drive how people are actually seeing the world. And that is how we have divided the book into these 10 chapters with the 10 different instincts. And you see, it's not themes like economy, health, and so on. Instead, we look at the world based on how humans perceive them. It's fear, it's size, destiny, and so on. And just go through them very briefly, as I, because I saw a few of you had read the book. So basically, what I'm going to give you now is rules of thumb so that you can actually understand the world better without really uh, using anything else than the frameworks you just saw and some rules of thumb for the thinking. The first one is gaps. As soon as you see a gap story, which you see basically every day all the time, usually something like this, poor rich and so on, you know, most people are somewhere in between. That is the only thing you have to remember. Learn by heart. There are huge differences, but you have to locate the majority. Pretty easy, right? Negativity. We hear all the time that it's just getting worse. But would an improvement get publicity? That's the question. We just have to remember those simple, small thinking habits would actually help us to achieve better and to understand the world better and not being so stressed by all these dramatic instincts that drive us crazy and think the world is so much worse than it actually is. We never see this. Yesterday, all trains were on time, I think, it's, but whatever, it's Swinglish. All trains were on time again, you know. The timetable is slightly improved. You never see things like that, right? And then we, we, we tend to think that uh, if you, we see a trend, it's very easy for our brains to think that it will continue the same way as we have seen it so far. Then we have to remember that lines might bend, right? There are different kinds of patterns. It's not obvious that it has to continue as a straight line. We see a lot of fear-driven stories. Help, 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 you know. Um, but it might not be a crocodile. It might just be a key. Who knows, right? So we should calculate the risks. If we see a spider, we get very scared, but it's the cars that kills us. I mean, we just have to remember those things. Uh, size, we see, cell very often we see single numbers, and we hear it's a huge problem. But huge compared to what? We have to compare and divide to actually know whether something is huge or not. As soon as we talk about global problems, every number will be big, even though it's a small problem. Here, for instance, 2016, 4 million kids or, or babies under the age of one dies. Horrible numbers, right? But it was worse in 2015 and worse in 1950. So we have to put things in proportions to understand what is happening around us. Then we tend to generalize. They are all the same, you know, when we group things very simplistically. So we have to be very careful when we do that and look at the groups. Are these the, the relevant groups or are they just uh, stupid and, and make us see the world wrongly? Here, for instance, 
This one we've seen pretty much the latest years, right? We see refugees coming. They come from North Africa, and there's a boat coming towards Gran Canaria. And they are just close to find the freedom. And they have dreamt, I guess, about coming to Europe, and they're finally making it, but there is a but in the story. They end up on the nudist beach in Mas Palomas, And I wonder if anyone had warned them before where they might go. Would they, was this the goal, to come to this beach with these pink, <laughs> pink people without clothes walking around? Was this what they were, were hoping for? I don't know. I'm not sure. What were the groups there, right? And then we have the destiny. We tend to think that everything is static. It will be the same as it has always been. But most things are actually changing, even though it's slow movement. So we have to remember, most things are improving. This is uh, uh, Polish women coming to Sweden to make abortions, because it has been illegal in Poland, right? While in the 60s, it was the other way around. Swedish women went to, to abortion trips to Poland. Things are changing. Two cultures, and they change values over time. That happens all the time. It's slow movements drastic changes, and we tend to forget that and think that everything is static and will stay as it is. Single solution. We love single solution. Here we have all the ideologies and frameworks in our minds, what we think is the right way to do it. And we usually think, this will solve it all. We have a bright idea or a mindset or so forth. And then we should always think, wow, is it magic? Sort of stay calm. We might be stupid. Use more tools, basically. Here, for instance, we see life expectancy for five different countries. You see very different countries, Saudi Arabia, Tunisia, Turkey, Cuba, United States. They all have a life expectancy of 79 years. But look at the health spending. Pretty different. Blame. This is our favorite, I think. We love to blame someone. And as soon as we find someone to blame, we can relax because then we don't have to think anymore. And I think that is a very dangerous thing because we stop being smart when we blame things. Usually, there's a lot of different solutions, right? And there's systems and so forth behind it. It's not that easy. We like scapegoats. Now it's Mike Zuckerberg, right? He's the one. He's the evil one, probably, right? We'll see what happens. And then we have the action. We tend to always be driven by now or never. We have to act now, otherwise it, it will be too late. But very often, we should take one step at a, at a time, and we can usually actually adjust as we go, and we have to be careful. We should not act when we are emotionally like wild and driven, because then we might do the wrong decisions. So we try to keep it very simple. So we have the rules of thumb here. Uh, and you, as you can see, when you have the blue things here, gray in the book, in Sweden, it's actually blue, but in here, it's gray. Uh, you see these ones, they are actually sort of how you should think, while this is what you thought before. So we, we hope that you will go towards the bluer kind of thinking, right? And uh, when we see headlines like this, everything is getting worse, you know, we see, we see this all the time. Maybe we should actually have a sticker on it, just like we have on the cigarettes. The news often makes things seem very alarming, right? So that we can remember that we have to actually keep our heads active. And maybe we should do, you've seen probably that we changed the rules, how much of the information you need to go on the pack. So 65% is actually the rule for how much you have to cover on the cigarette pack. And you have to cover it with a, a horrible image as well. So maybe we should do something like this on the news, just to stay alert that we might get distracted by these dramatic messages and it might continue to skew our worldview. So that is actually sort of the takeaway here. <laughs> and if you want to read more about the book, 
you can find it here. Is there anything more? Yes, of course, there's more things yeah. to say. <laughs> But wait, basically, we will try to be quiet now so that you have a few minutes to answer, ask questions. That is probably what we should do. Yes, it's <laughs> difficult to stop. But um, Thank you very much. That was great. Um, can you hear me? I, I can fill in. Uh, can you hear me? She's asking. <laughs> Okay. Can you can you give me some boys, please? Can you make my mic work? No. No, it okay, works. Okay, no works. Um, that's a brilliant idea. I wish I could put that on the Daily Mail. I think that that would be brilliant. <laughs> the Daily Mail is not here. They wouldn't like that for this. But thank you so much, and I'm so pleased that you actually wrote book because I mean that's my rants in the lectures. Actually, now they're all going to be in the book, and I'm just going to tell students just look there. It's already in the library here. It's already in my reading list as well. Um, I'm ask you something quickly before I open up to the audience. Um, We get a lot in demography now, the kind of resurgence of neo-Malthusian. And actually, I must say, about the questions on demography, we did much worse five years ago, which was actually quite uh, oh. bad. Um, <laughs> the ones about the two billion children, and I hope that the 26% actually are my students, otherwise I'll get you afterwards. And um, we get lots of neo-Malthusians telling us that we are Polyanis, thinking that it's all getting better, and we have to fight this idea that fertility is going down. People just don't believe us when we actually say, look, there is a difference between growth rate. So what's your reaction? You're getting lots of... Oh, mic. Ah, it sounded like something different. Yes. Oh, can you hear? But, but maybe here comes two mics. Okay. We have to stay yeah, away I think from I got the other, question. Maybe. Yes. yes. I it, mean, uh, what's, you must get some kind of negative reaction to this. It's still a sound, right? Is this better? Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> oh, there was oh, that noise. Actually, there was somebody's <laughs> shoes that were quite noisy and they were trying to leave. Sorry about that. Um, still there. Oh, yeah, let's blame It someone. It has to be someone, yeah. Anyway, you're getting probably negative um, reactions to us. Are you still getting it? Yeah. Is it me? No, I'm I'm scapegoat. Okay, let's mute. Let's <laughs> mute all three. We mute it, yeah. Well, let's mute. Is that one on? Yes, that's on. Yes. Let's, so let's use this answer, answer. Okay. Um, yes, I'll repeat the question. <laughs> or oh, you tell this question. Good, okay, good the, the question is, um, two people will tell you that you're too positive, that you're a Pollyannist. I guess that's how they're defined. Uh, that you look at things too rose-tainted. Um, that's too naive. What's your reaction to that? Uh, it's, nobody knows the future, so they might be right. Let's keep that in mind. Uh, in the 60s, we heard exactly the same phrases about Asia. Asia can never support a population of four billions. In that case, they were wrong. It doesn't mean they are wrong this time. Okay, Let's just keep that clear. But it sounds very much the same. Uh, no doubt. So it's all a question of how will food production in the future continue compared to how it produced so far, in, in the sense of food, right? Then there are all other kinds of resource scarcities which people are afraid of will kill billions of people. But we don't really have a history where a billion people... <laughs> Someone else up there. <laughs> 
It's the, it's the spaceships coming. That's what we're hearing, right? Now, is it good if we stand still? I don't know. It's Mark. Uh, so that, that is one, one... Okay, so anyone discussing the future with a very dystopian uh, picture will always have the case that you don't know if it's going to develop this way. No, we don't. That's why we asked, what do the UN experts think? Just like with the climate question, what do they believe, right? We're not asking what will happen because there is no correct answer to that. So keeping that in mind, uh, then neglecting all the progress and the food production that happened despite everybody's expectations is kind of an argument. And they might buy that one, but then they say this time is different because we're, we're uh, polluting the planet with too much CO2 and we can't do all these fertilizers, blah, blah, blah. It's very hard to debate in another way than saying, okay, let's see, but I, I believe it's very likely that mankind like we had done all the times before, figure a solution where a billion people don't die, okay? Because that happens very, very rarely. Still, it hasn't happened that one billion people just disappear. Four billion more people and three of them die. What is the catastrophe they are seeing in their heads? Why would this turn into a moment when suddenly lots of people start dying? Maybe locally. Okay, maybe locally, like Tunisia, food prices goes up. And yes, let's say, yes, they are probably right in some local circumstances at some periods of time that people will run out of food and it won't be there fast enough and there will be conflict before, because of that or water. But in the big proportion, it will probably be so small we can hardly see it on the population curve. That's my guess. But then they would try to confirm this prediction as soon as there is a crisis, and there will be and say, oh, look now, this is what we were warning for, like the food prices goes up in, in, let's imagine, Morocco next. And then suddenly, you know, they see that as a confirmation that this is the end of the world. And, and that, seeing the, the frequency of these kind of terrible shortages of food or water, etc., might help. So let's, let's do a map of how often these crises actually happen, so we can point them there and say, yes, it happens, but it doesn't have the effect that you are foreseeing. Something like that. Uh, it's all about convincing them that this data is kind of relevant because often they don't want to look at the data at all because they have already convinced themselves. So I think the best way to convince them that you're ready to discuss it is to say, yeah, we don't know either. Nobody can know. That's a very good, humble approach to it instead of claiming that we are right and you are wrong. Yes, can I just briefly? So one of the major takeaways from the book is actually how you can teach, uh, tra train yourself to be actually more humble and curious and realizing that most likely you will not know as much as you think and you should be nice and friendly towards the others as well. And you can try to find a climate where we can actually talk about things not as nasty. So I think that is like very, just being more decent. <laughs> I think that is actually very useful. So um, we're going to take um, um, questions in groups of three. Um, if I can see the raised hand that there were a couple. I've seen one there. Anyone else? Um, there is one up there. Another up there. Three. Okay, so yeah, let's start from the floor, that gentleman there. Um, <clears throat> if you can say as well your name and where you're from. Hi, I'm Ramin and I uh, teach economics at UCL and I widely use Gapminder and our world in data and students love it. 
Now, of course, the first step is about spreading the right facts. Uh, the second step is about the analysis of facts. And people usually have the same biases, you know, even with the right facts. You know, they mistake correlation with causation and all of these sampling biases. So the question is that what's the next step for the gap minder? Is gap minders going to explore interesting ways about analysis of data? So I'm going to go then up there, that gentleman with checked shirt. Thank you very much. My name is Richard. Um, I'm an, I'm an ex-child activist. Um, as looking at the demographics of which you've collated your data, I noticed there's one group that's um, quite significantly absent, and that would be at the furthest end, further than your lowest income, there is the homeless and, and destitute. Is there a reason why you didn't include that in the data, and, and maybe why not? And then there was a question over there. Hi there, thanks. Samuel Segura from the Graduate Institute of International Development Studies in Geneva. Um, I was just very curious because from the samples that you, that you showed us in the slides, now I haven't seen the book, right? Big disclaimer. But I was just curious if you've carried out any sampling and polling in developing countries and whether there, you reckon there might be an interesting change in terms of the results. Thank you. Three questions. We have to keep them in our head, right? Oh, yes. It's amazingly difficult. <laughs> so uh, l let's start. Uh, the question about the homeless population. Are you talking about uh, image white? Because basically we talked for less than an hour, so we couldn't cover everything. Uh, <laughs> but are you talking about when we talk about the four levels and, the, and show different income levels within a country and so on? Yes. What, what was highly significant yes. was you took so, it from the highest income yes. almost to the lowest, but not quite. I would say, no, I would say actually uh, the thing is that the homeless population would not end up lower in the, than the lowest because this in is a global... But he means homeless in, say, Mozambique. Or do you mean in UK, UK or... No, I, I mean globally. I'm, I'm, there's, a, there's a drastic difference between yes, but, London to yes. Nigeria. So, so basically, uh, basically you could say if you're homeless... Uh, in in UK, you probably you would not end up on level one because you live in a society where you still have some access to things, even though you don't have a home, right? And in a global comparison, the level living in level one, further down, is actually might be something different. Do you have a, 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 a an answer, Ula? Yes. The, uh, if you talk about homeless people in UK, first of all, it's difficult to visit their home. So, yeah. but, but <laughs> yeah, definitely we would like to put them in. Yes. We were in contact with a photographer in Los Angeles, yeah. actually, who had took, uh, he took doc documentary photos in the s uh, really poor environments under the highways. Yes. It would be great to have them covered. To, to express their income level is very difficult. They don't yeah. have any formal income, so you would have to look at the assets they got. If they have a cell phone, you give that a point, which, yeah. is, which definitely immediately put them outside of extreme poverty just by having a cell phone, right? Then do they also have a toothbrush? Do they have these things? Clean, mm. Are they yeah. having clean water, etc.? So, so, that yeah. brings them out of extreme poverty. But, like, but, a like a tally chart. Yes, but, but you know what? Actually, we would love to have them included. So please help us find them and add them to the, to, to the material. So, uh, that is a short answer. Let's talk more after. There yes. were two more questions. Uh, really, really interesting. Um, yeah, this is all freely available online, so you can yeah. please check it out. Dollar Street or Gapminder, yeah. you will find this material. Uh, the, the second question, please remind me, because I know I had an answer. Analysis. 
the next step. Okay, so uh, analysis part, causality and correlation, that problem we don't cover in our book. We've seen many books doing a great job there. It's almost like the next step. There are tons of books, like, like the enumeracy uh, book, etc., and, and the mathematical thinking books, which try to make it simple. It's still, I would say, it's one level after factfulness. We remove that rule of thumb because it ends up being, well, it's part of the blame story, when people think one thing is causing something else, but it's actually a complex correlation with many things. We avoid all the language of academia. You will not find academic language in the book. That's one of the trademarks of Gapminder and Hans Rosling. We don't call it demographic momentum. We call it the fill-up. Because we're talking to the public outside this room. Okay, yeah, that, that is really... For people who, who really don't know the things, right? But, but it's definitely relevant. We're teaching critical thinking skills, and what you're describing is definitely the second level. If you got this right, now there is the next one. We have a longer list of rules of thumb we didn't think. So... You could say the short answer would be we started with a very advanced uh, bubble chart technology because we thought if we just do that, everything will work out. And then we have been moving backwards ever since to simpler and simpler and simpler and simpler and simpler. And we hope that we can move, start walking in the other direction because we've covered the simplest stuff. Because it seems like there very few people are in that corner where we have ended up. So we hope to get help from all of you, actually, to cover the whole distance. So please help us. And the third question was, yes, one, what was that? It was just about the poll, yeah. polling. Not, not, yes, super interesting question. We tried to poll with Ipsos and others in uh, at least China, South Africa, and other places. It's, it's difficult to know if we can trust the result because the sampling of online population is not so useful if only half of the population is online like China now. So we have a number actually for urban China which we trust, which is what polling companies can sell to marketers who want to reach this audience. So it's relevant polling data for marketing and commercial sector, but for us expressing something of the general population. Now, the interesting part is, why don't we have, have high-quality polling in China? Well, these, uh, these kind of institutes like, like Ipsos and others, are they a product of democracy? Every fourth year, we challenge, uh, we try to forecast the democratic votes. So in countries with democracy, we got high-quality polling going on because there is a competition and there's a market for these kind of companies. Has this been missing in China? That's my own theory. I'd love it to be true. <laughs> now I can't resist. I, was, I had to hold my hands hard behind my back not to just grab the mic. Been married too long, so <laughs> just like <laughs> grabbing it. But uh, the, I, I would say we would love to poll all, all, even in those countries, but the honest answer would actually be, I mean, it's no problem to find them, the people to poll, to get representative samples, but then you have to do it in other ways than online, and then it becomes expensive, and we, we are a small nonprofit. So we would need help from others, basically, to, to do that. We would love that. I, uh, I, I've been, we've been trying to poll these countries because that, I imagine they are better than us, right? The middle income, you call them developing countries. That word is banned in our book, yes, so you know. But the idea you say is really good. Imagine the middle income countries are better than us. And that's actually what we saw in some of the results from China and in South Africa. That's why we were careful not publishing it because the implications are very strong that if you live in middle income countries, you see development, you have a better representative picture of what's happening in the world because you're part of it. We living on high income, we don't really see it. So we have a skewed worldview. So maybe we 
are the worst off when it comes to a, a representative worldview. We don't want to make that case until we trust the data. So Bob who's sitting there, Bobby, he, he can guarantee I sent emails to him asking, what would it cost to do a real representative sample of the rural parts of China? And it was very expensive. But <laughs> we're looking for that money, and we haven't really... But the case would be if they score better than the Westerners and the high income, then that is a really interesting finding, right? We would love to do that. But you have to do it carefully with representative samples, and we haven't really been able to trust it yet. Another round of questions. There was um, one over there, another one. I'm desperately looking for a woman because they always tell you that the seminars women speak less. Oh, uh, good point. Oh, you see, I got the mic now after that comment. <laughs> okay, so that's good. Yes. Okay, I, I'm Jack Daly from the LSHTM. Uh, what constitutes news value? I think you're addressing the problem of what constitutes news value. And it's determined by two things. The probability event. I don't want to read about high probability events. And I want basically to read about bad events. So I'm always reading about the number of murders and knife crimes in East London. And... Gapminder won't overcome the utility side, my preferences for reading about bad things. Yeah. And it won't overcome my interest in reading only about low probability events. So, No, and actually, I, I, I would say, uh, uh, unfortunately, I, I am the same. So I love to read about those things too. So I would say what we're trying to do is to give you some rules of thumb so you can continue your habit of doing that because you, won't, you will do it secretly anyhow, even if you would claim you didn't, uh, because it's hard to resist. Because it's... It, huh? Yeah, me too. I love it. No, and, and I don't want to be changed on that either, but I need to, to have, stay fresh in my brain and understand the world and not be so pessimistic about the world around me. I still need the context. So what we try to provide is, are some easy uh, guidelines to help you continue your habits, but still keeping in mind the slow trends and the global proportions so that you can know whether murders are actually increasing or not as a whole. doesn't mean you should stop reading about them. No, but, no uh, yeah. Yes, answer, yeah. We have a, an instinct... We have an instinct for sugar and fat, right? That makes people obese. So we teach our kids in school. Have you heard of school? That's the other thing, not news. We teach them in school, not in the news, about good eating habits. And now it's part of like education across the world because we realize the problem of obesity. What we have realized here is the problem of drama, obesity. We think we have to teach this in schools, not in the news. Don't trust the news to change. They will not change. They shouldn't. We should have the right expectations on the news, saying, okay, let's look at the exceptions. That's what they look like. Okay, the real world, the world map, we learned in school, not in the news, right? And the same thing with these kind of frameworks. Let's teach it to the kids in the school. But the grown-ups will need it too because the world is changing. The world map doesn't. Not much. But, but the world of income and health changes and changes. So that's why we need also a certificate in adult education, like at Google, where we worked before. We needed to teach them where the four billions are because they didn't realize the market is in Asia, right? They're American young nerds, the brilliant people, high IQ. They still didn't know where the four billions were. So that's education in a changing world needs to happen at workplaces. And this is con 
completely missing in our education system. Uh, uh, Infrastructure for certifying that grown-ups are up-to-date with the changing world. That's pretty much where we think Gapminder fills a role. And that's why we have a certificate now on our website, which we're giving to organizations to have a certificate. We have passed the test, at least on a uh, biannual basis. You should pass the 12 questions from Gapminder. You know you're at least not completely wrong about the world. That's where you can guarantee a basic level of knowledge. If I may interject there, um, one of my um, queries was what's next for Gapminder in terms of training with schools, with uh, masters uh, students or undergraduates? I mean, how can somebody, for example, take you up and say, how can we spread the word among students or um, go to our children's school and do something similar? So what we try to do now, basically we had Hans, and that was great, but he was not very scalable, and unfortunately now he's also dead, which makes it even harder. So uh, we have to find other ways to scale what we think people should know, and the only thing we can think of is actually making uh, uh, information easier to understand and share it, and hope that we together can actually uh, spread it. So we try to build models where actually others can use our materials and, and help us spread. So all our tools and slideshows are completely free to use. They are used in classrooms by millions. I think it's like six million students a year who see them and use them in their education. They are absolutely free. We find a business model in other ways by lecturing and selling certificates to to commercial sector. This this is like how we plan to to finance this in the future. And uh, this certificate is our first attempt. It's the same questions as in the book. And finding an incentive for an organization to say, okay, we don't want to be worse than chimpanzees, say LSE staff, for example. It's kind of embarrassing. So we're going to go out in the media and tell them that LSE, this is not a representative sample. So there were also people from outside. So that probably saved you. That was actually your own notice, yes. So we want to check you internally and then get a result. And then we're going to threaten you that we're going to go to the BBC. And by the way, we're going to test the BBC too. So this is a shame thing we're doing, right? Comparing people to monkeys, asking them. And we did this with the news media in Sweden. They got so afraid, they invited us to give a lecture and take the certificate. This is the Swedish news channel number four, and they got certified and number one. Okay, so one by one, we can shame institutions against each other and have them take our certificate. Because it's so embarrassing to be absolutely wrong about the billions on the world map, etc. So this is a school in Sweden. We're also doing this with teachers and schools. So basically we're inviting you, and you're here, Peter, with the uh, people who just take our slides and start doing their own campaign locally, like in Netherlands, what you're doing. It's great that you're here. You actually took it without asking for, for uh, um, the, the policy from us or anything. You just started using it. That's exactly what we want. Steal it and use it, okay? This is a policy. It's better to ask for forgiveness than, than for, uh, ac- what is it, acceptance. <laughs> yeah, permission. Yes, please go ahead, steal these things. You can probably improve them. Also, feedback is not required. You can actually take our slideshows and sell them if you want to. That might be needed on a USB in India, for example. Yes, it's free. It's under Creative Commons license B- by 40. 
exactly like, like our world in data. You can take this content, but just credit it back to us, say, free from Gapminder. That's with the slides and all these charts and appalling results, etc. Uh, and also the videos on our website. And people are doing that, but it's, it, it's, this is probably easier now. Hans really wanted it to spread, but having one star on the stage, everybody think it's embarrassing to steal his slideshows and try to steal his show. Now he's gone. He wanted you to steal his slides all the time. Can you do it now when he's gone? Wouldn't that be nice? Please do that. That's exactly what we want to happen. Okay, I know that there were a couple of questions here, but I'm going to give the um, floor to that person over there. Um, thank you for positive discrimination <laughs> for women. Um, you have a very similar um, presentation skills to your father. And... Um, I study education research at University of Cambridge. My research is on impact of parents. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, could you give us, share with us um, one thing that your father taught you or any experience? Thank you. Um, Carsten Shaw, teacher at the LSE. Um, you suggest quite persuasively that the news is responsible for a lot of the, the ignorance, and it's difficult to, to argue with that. Um, but at the same time, do you have any evidence about the different types of news or, or intensity or frequency of news and how that impacts the level of ignorance? Or do you think some of the cognitive biases are so ingrained in, in our kind of human psyche that the news is a little bit more incidental? Hi, my name is Ujwal, and I'm a postgraduate student at LSE. And my question is, we talk a lot about the news, but what strategies can Gapminder and other organizations take to also educate the development sector, including multinational agencies, including practitioners, students, and academics, who might still have outdated worldviews and outdated ways of doing policy based on facts that are no longer true, so to say? How can we get this change to also take place in the educated sector. Oh, wonderful. Did you hear how you switched from you to we in one long sentence? First you said, how will you, and then you said we. That's the answer. You are going to do it with us, okay? Can email us afterwards. That's the only way. We're only two people, and we also have ki kids. They are back here, actually, waiting. <laughs> So, no, please, please help us. That's definitely, and by stealing our show and our jokes and everything, confront them with ignorance, compare them with chimps, it's an easy one. You're going to get lecture after lecture if you do it good. Okay, there is a huge market for this. Okay. Uh, I could answer the, the parent question. Uh, it's easier. <laughs> Uh, well, you're also a parent now. Okay, so, so my, my grandfather, my grandfather uh, went uh, five years to school, and then he started working. Um, so, and my grandmother too. So they were dreaming of uh, education, and that the book actually starts with my father uh, saying that he wanted to become a circus artist, right? But his parents had different dreams, and that's why he became a doctor, right? So he, he grew up in a very educational home. They had lots of books. They dreamt, dreamt of reading all those books, etc. So it starts, it's of course family in some sense, but it's also society. For me personally, growing up with Hans, uh, we had a very open dialogue all the time. When Anna came into my life, Hans and Anna started uh, 
actually having a, a similar discussion. So I think if you're open-minded and if it's a young student at your department and you're an open-minded person, Hans also had tons of PhDs in, in Sweden who learned a lot from him who are also educating in a similar style. I happen to have the same nasal voice as my father, so <laughs> they don't. Uh, but, but if there is one thing that a family can do in this world that others might have a harder time doing, it's to be... Um, which has it disrespectful. Like <clears throat> we, we once were in an elevator at the World Bank after confronting them s- times six or something that they should release all their data for free, which they eventually did. Okay, uh, and a person in the elevator told us yes before we reached the ground floor that he has said, "Do you know? I think your success is because of one thing that others don't have. You're so disrespectful." You just confront, and my father actually tested the other professors at Karolinska Institute and went on a TED stage saying they know less than chimpanzees about these things. You're not supposed to, but that's how we change the world. We need to be brave and confrontational and also comforting, say, this is not because of you, this is a systematic problem, but we need to be brave. And we have nothing to lose. Actually, Gapminder Foundation, we can be really brave. We're not taking money from one source only, so we can actually criticize the Gates Foundation if they are doing bad things, even though they are paying part of our salaries, because we have a policy of never having all the funding from one source. And this is super important with, with independent institutions. And universities and the career, academic career, is not an independent situation. You really rely on people's trust above you and you need to behave nice. That is a big, big academic problem, especially when it comes to this kind of things. That's why we exist. If universities were doing this already, we didn't have to do it. If mass media was doing it already, gap money wouldn't exist. So we're filling a gap of a kind of knowledge checking that nobody has an incentive to do and they are blocked to do. UN cannot do these kind of tests uh, because it's diplomatically challenging to, to ask these kind of questions. We were at Google. We couldn't do it in the Google brand, right? It would be disastrous for Google saying you're like a chimpanzee. Nobody would like it. So we stepped out back to Gapminder and said, let's do it from Gapminder. That works. Okay? How we can grow it, it would be dangerous to be too big because we really need to be independent. So it's better if more people do it independently. We share our stuff with the world in data. You're citing our ignorance uh, project on your site. That's the way to do it. So if we make a mistake and we fall, you will survive and you do your thing. That, I think, is the solution. If that's a f- another family doing it, I don't know. But, but it's not only a family. But within a family, you can be very, very brave because by the end of the day, you're still going to stay together. <laughs> okay, what did you <laughs> I mean, you can be, yeah, put it the other way around. It's a pretty riskful business because what if, you know, you disagree? Then you lose quite a lot. So I think uh, it has been a high-risk high project from the beginning. Yes, the amazing thing here is that Anna is still in the project because, you know, working with me and Hans and we get all the attention all the time, but she had the good judgment to say, this is too big, we need to be at at Google, let's have them steal the idea. Coming up with the dollar street idea, telling Hans never to say double-double logarithmic on a stage, that's all thanks to Anna, she's been directing the language of Hans on stage. He can only be happy that he could perform and he could listen. So he took these directives and he changed his language, and it became a success. Hans was a professor when we started working with him, and then he became a world-famous professor. We say that he's the Brian Cox of data for us. <laughs> there was one, the one last question. Oh, yeah, what was it again? Yes. 
I, I don't think I have any evidence. It would be interesting. Steven Pinker starts his, his latest book, the, the, the Enlightenment Now, by citing a, a source I haven't checked, but it's fascinating to see the vocabulary in the news have become more dramatic. It was more descriptive back in the 50s. That might very, very well be true. If you remember what happened in the 40s and 30s, there were tons of ignorance in Europe, right? People believing certain things about different races and stuff like that. Absolutely wrong. I don't think the worldview was better before. No, I don't think personally that fake news is very much increasing. I think it's been around. The reporting about it has increased. And that's one of the rules of thumbs in, in this book is when you see an increase in reporting, you often confuse it with an increase in the actual phenomena in reality. This we should teach to kids in school. So when they hear about fake news, even about the fake news themselves as now an avalanche of problems, Step back and say, mm, is it just an increase of reporting? Thanks to fa uh, Facebook, people are spreading fa fake news in a place where we can actually see it. That's what happened. Fake news has always been around, but thanks to Mark, now we can track them down. Okay? It's another way of thinking. And I actually think that applies more. And also to solve the problem, starting by reporting it, is the first step, right? Now we can see the problem. How are we, are we going to censor Facebook? No, I'm absolutely against. I think it's a terrible idea. But now we start having a constructive discussion, right? Sorry. That was rude again. Sorry. Uh, and then I think, I think it's just important to remember, uh, because when people get excited, they start asking us uh, like very advanced research questions, how much money we spend on like doing the serious research ourselves. We have to remember we're a tiny, tiny, tiny NGO, and we do not have these super, super advanced researchers around. We don't have those uh, resources either. And basically, we think that that research should actually go on like in places like this one, for example, just to pick one. <laughs> and and, and uh, I think our skill is trying to bridge uh, between a lot of research that doesn't really come through to the general public. So I think, I think that, that is where we should, should spend our time. But we do... Uh, Oh, no. sorry, now he so, was... No, I, I'm just, let's do this. You're not supposed to show your own inbox, right? But let's do this. I can show you the document called Igno Index, where we have the 400, 500 questions we wanted to test. Some of them we have tested. We run them with Ipsos or a, a local company in Sweden. But we just don't have the business model to test everything we want to test in terms of fact, factual knowledge. So this is how the ignorance project starts. We're just putting like statements that we think people are wrong about, and then we need to find a fact... So I'm just going to scroll down and see the number at the bottom of this spreadsheet. It's like 400 things. There are 12 questions in the book. We wanted to ask hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of questions. We have been wrong again and again about what people, the poor countries have not developed at all in terms of health. Do people have that misconception or not? We've been wrong when we've been guessing, when we've been asking. We thought, for example, that people, we asked urbanization in Africa. What pro proportion of people in Africa live in cities? And we thought people would have a skewed picture there. They didn't. They were quite right, like 50% or so live in cities. And they, they thought, so we give them these alternatives of every African live on the countryside. No, and they didn't pick that answer. So in some cases, people actually know the facts, and we have been notoriously bad at predicting when people are ignorant. So it's only by actually testing, we now know 12 things which we can predict that you are going to be wrong about. And, yeah, and even constructing the questions... about what should be in the question, because we might be wrong about the question alternative, uh, answer alternative. So, so this little it's process... Another, it's, it's another way of, I mean, it's a transparent uh, way of dealing with information, and we have to work together, basically.
So in this book, we publish no academic research of our own at all. No, no acad- so that is an open space. If we have shown indications here of misconceptions and how they work, it's only a hypothesis in that sense. Uh, and we definitely, we, our plan is not to become academic researchers because there are so many. We think it's more important we play this independent role, trying to find the problems and leave them behind us. So there's a ru- huge room, but we share all the information and all the questions. If people want to grab these questions and do a real interview, like qualitative interview with people who answer wrongly and ask them, how do you mean, why did you pick 20%? And hear how they reason, that's also a very reasonable thing to do. We only did that after lectures, people come up to us and say stupid things. But that's not real research, right? So we're not claiming this is academic in any sense, but we definitely think there is a huge space of problem here which deserves to be better investigated across all fields. That's why animals are in there, climate, etc., etc. Can we find the climate ignorance? We haven't. But there are probably other climate questions to ask where there is a reliable fact, answer, and people are actually wrong. That we should inform about. But this one, what the experts are saying about temperature, no, people kind of know it. Okay? So you see, I'm opening up for a space of ignorance measuring in psychology and social science, which we're not attempting to protect or defend. We're rather, we share everything we have. Please go ahead and do a real thesis on this. That would be very interesting. I think I'm going to close there because it's 8 o'clock and Ola and Anna are going to be at, at the front of the theatre just outside signing the book. Get your copy. It's funny. It makes you angry. It makes you upset. But it's tons of interesting stuff. I think the personal fact is the thing that I enjoyed the most and I guess that's what everyone says. I would like to thank, first of all, uh, Deepa Patel, um, the Hodder um, um, Publishing and the A Communication people here at the LSE for organizing things. And thank you, thank you so much to Ola and Anna for coming here. That was great. Thank you.